Welcome. You're listening to Living Faith Podcast. Starry skies, see your hand in time, in mind to lead me through the night. What a tremendous presence of our Father in the place today. And He's loving us and blessing us and stirring. I feel prophetically that there is a new burden that God has given for our cities <laughs> and a new burden for our neighborhoods that He is putting upon us. And I feel like the reason why God has put such a strong direction in my heart to be here today is to put some ministry and some healing focus in our lives so that we can do the work that God has called us to do. So very glad to be here today giving high honor to your pastor and to my friend and also to First Lady. Love and appreciate them both very much and also live in faith. So good to be back with you again to see so many of your smiling faces. Look forward to shaking your hands, hugging your neck, and letting you know how important it is that you are in our lives. Lois is actually not with me today. She is at one of our granddaughter's birthday parties. <clears throat> so that kind of trumped everything that I had going today. <laughs> but she does send her greetings and wants you to know that she is in prayer for our services today. I have brought at the table in the back, you'll find the books that we presented here before, The Awesome Power and Privilege of a Woman's Voice. If you don't have that, you want to get that as a lady. Also, the devotion that goes with it. The book that just came out this year, Clothed and in My Right Mind. It's a book of revelation about how God clothes our spirits, our minds, and not just our bodies, and you'll want to get that. But something brand new that I want to present to you is my prayer keeper, and this is for our children. But the parent goes with it the first couple of times and puts stickers and writes different things in it. So from there on, when the child goes through their prayer keeper at nighttime, they'll know when to pray for the family and when to pray for pastor and when to pray for the city and different things. And we've got that available and also the rest Bible study. And Lois has sent me with several of these and a QR code on the back that can help you go through this so that you will be in good biblical understanding of how rest happens. And you'll want to make sure to get that in your life. <clears throat> While you're standing with me, would we look at the Gospel of John, chapter 2. I'm going to read the last three verses of chapter 2, then I will continue directly into chapter 3 without stopping, understanding, of course, that the separation of chapter and verse did not happen in the original writing of the Scripture. But there was 13th century, 14th and 15th, when different archbishops and different leaders of the church began to separate into chapter and verse so that we could find different places. So as I read this from chapter 2 into chapter 3, understand that it's one continual thought and it's not meant to be separated. So from chapter 2, verse 23... Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. <clears throat> now, did you see that huge contrast? This is why they separated the chapters between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Because the end of chapter 2, there's many people at the feast that believe in Jesus because of the miracles. But he does not commit to them. 
because he knows mankind. But then immediately there was a man, and of all people, of the Pharisees, and Jesus commits to him the new birth message. Some he commits to, some he doesn't. I want you to see that they said the same things. No man can do these miracles except God be with him. That's exactly what those at the feast were saying. So what is the difference? There are some that God commits to, and there are some he does not commit to. It behooves us to understand the commitment of God. And for just a few moments, I'll preach the commitment of God for the sake of ministry in the house today. God bless you. You may be seated. <clears throat> there is an absolute horror story, and don't go there now, but you'll find this in Matthew 7, where it's the end of time and Jesus is speaking about the gathering of the harvest of the world. And he declares that there will be many that stand before him. And when he says to them, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, they will be shocked, <laughs> surprised. And they will say, wait a minute. We were Christians. We were faithful to our particular church. We were part of this organization. Not only that, they will say, we were a people of the name. And we did many mighty miracles in your name. And Jesus will say, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Emphasis here in Matthew 7 is that it is so important for us not only to know him, but it's also very important for him to know us. And it's easy to get into a walk with God, if you will, where we are worshiping him and we're not vulnerable and we're not open and we don't deal with our stuff. And we're not showing him who we really are. And it's a relationship that's one-sided. But we see here in Matthew, he's got to know us too. <clears throat> so what is this difference that we're seeing in John 2 versus John 3? Jesus lets us know in verse 24 of chapter 2, the reason he does not commit himself to them is because he knows all men. And if I could substitute that word in the next verse, he needed not that man should testify of man, for he knows what is in man. There's a propensity in mankind, and it's simply this, to take the vehicle that is supposed to bring us into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and start having a relationship with the vehicle instead of a relationship with the God of the vehicle. That vehicle is religion. It's church ceremony. It's everything that we do that is needful that brings us into a relationship with God. But the propensity of mankind, the habit that we have is to have a, rel a relationship with the religion, a relationship with an organization, a relationship with the local assembly, a relationship with church leaders, and forget the God of the very religion. It's incumbent upon us that we realize that just because you're a part of a particular organization or particular church that doesn't check off the box to say that you are going to make heaven your home, but rather that's the vehicle you should use. And every individual has a personal responsibility to have a relationship with the Lord, to not only know him personally, but to allow him to know you personally as well. I want you to see throughout church history how this has happened. How do we get from the Old Testament understanding of the Scripture and everything of the Old Testament, prophecies and feasts and fasts, everything of the Old Testament pointing us to the Messiah, to the Christ. And those that knew that word the best, when Jesus came, they didn't recognize him. <clears throat> How do you get to that place? 
where religion after religion, service after service, reading the word after reading the word, yet when the Messiah shows up, they have no clue who he is. It's that propensity. They were so in love with their ceremony and with their relationship with their religion that when God shows up, when Jesus shows up, they'd rather have their religion than they would rather have God. This is the habit of mankind. If I was to take you just a few hundred years past the book of Acts into church history, you would find that there are groups of people who call themselves Christians who are now sending out crusaders or assassins to kill people who do not confess in Jesus Christ. How do we get to that place where people that love the Lord and love the Word and are living a in life, how do we get to the place that they're murdering people because they don't confess their belief in Christ? It sounds so ridiculous, but they fall in love with the religion and they're not vulnerable to the God so that he knows them and they know him. It's easy to see this necessity when we begin to look at the early church. And if I was to take two individuals today, two apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, and make a comparison between the apostle Simon Peter and the apostle Paul, then you will find tremendous differences. Tremendous. If I was to use today uh, phraseology or words that are common to us today, to try to describe these two apostles, I could say of Simon Peter that he was a very conservative Pentecostal. Absolutely, he's Pentecostal. He received the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. He also seems to be very conservative in relationship of how he is leading the people of God that has been under his authority. But if I try to identify the Apostle Paul in the same way, I would have to say he's a liberal Pentecostal. Because again, he absolutely received the gift of the Holy Ghost as Ananias laid his hands on him, received his sight, and received the Holy Ghost evidence of speaking in tongues. But those that he's leading, he's leading in a totally different way. Not conservative like Simon Peter. Well, we would maybe say more liberal. In fact, it got to be such a big deal in the first century church that they had to get together at the general conference and pass resolutions. That's what's happening in Acts. And so they decided for the sake of fellowship and unity among the people of God, even those that Paul is ministering to and those that Simon Peter is ministering to, that there's a lower common denominator. And this is what we'll all agree is a common denominator. And then you can be more conservative and you can be more liberal, if you will. The understanding of that is their harvest field. Simon Peter is preaching primarily to individuals who are Jewish, who are raised in the knowledge of the Old Testament, who much is giving, much is required, and there should be a greater understanding of the holiness of God. There should be a modesty, and there should be a holiness that somehow they understand. But Paul is preaching to people primarily that are heathens, they don't know God from the pew. They, they, they're, they're having to learn everything brand new. And so according to where the individuals are coming from in culture, there's differences of what is expected of them. This is religion. 
But what's expected of every one of them is absolutely a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, whether Greek or Jew, whether heathen background or Christian background. All of us got to come from wherever we come from to an understanding that I have to have a personal relationship with God that only makes me want to know him, but makes me want him to know me. In fact, we see very specifically in this text as well as in other places that Jesus, this is the, this is the line that you cross. This is the barrier that separates who he commits to versus who he does not commit to. Can I tell you, people all over our city today, people all over our nation, this weekend people all over the world would be gathering together in buildings like this and buildings very much unlike this. And they'll be saying some of the same things, singing some of the same things, but I'm telling you, some church services God will commit to and others he will not. Some people he will commit to, some he will not. It's biblical. So what's happening here that this man Nicodemus is being given this new birth message, and the commitment of Christ is obviously for him. If anyone seemingly should not be committed to, it'd be Nicodemus, because he's a Pharisee. <clears throat> and that's who Jesus had the hardest time with, because they were so enveloped by their Pharisaical religion that very few of them were open-minded to God. And this man is a root of the Jews, a Pharisee. If anyone should have all against him that Jesus would not commit himself to, it should be Nicodemus. So what does Nicodemus do? The scripture tells us that he waits till it's dark outside. And then he goes to the window of his house or his church as he was staying and he sneaks out of his window, hoping nobody sees him. He goes by cover of darkness to find Jesus. Now understand, Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. He's a leader in the Pharisees. So he is an individual probably with doctorates behind his name. He is probably the camp meeting speaker of their day. He is probably well known in anybody that mentions Nicodemus in the entire area of Israel knows who this is. He's expected or he is received as a religious man. But now that he is sneaking out at midnight, he's kneeling down at the feet of a 30-year-old man that has never been to seminary. <clears throat> He doesn't have any doctorates behind his name. He is not received as a great speaker of godly things. And Nicodemus kneels at his feet and says, you're rabbi, I'm the student, you're the master. I'm the one to be taught, you're the teacher, I'm the one that needs information here. And he begins to declare unto him that I'm willing to put all of my religiosity aside. All the things that I've learned in seminary, all the reputation I have, everything that I've gathered, I'm willing to put all that aside if I can just kneel at the feet of God and know of him and let him know me. I tell you, this is still whom God commits to today. Those that come hungry and decide they want to know him, not just religious rhetoric, but they want to know him, who are admitting that we need him to know me and willing to go through the vulnerability and the faith and the hunger for this to happen. It's still who he commits to today, not just those that have a good name on their sign or those that are part of a certain organization. It's those that personally are seeking his face and those that want to be known of him. I'm 
at a place in my life where I'm not looking so much at goals and try to obtain things. But my every purpose of even ministering is so that I might know him and that I might share him and that I might position myself where he knows me and to bring people in a place of leadership where they also will desire the same thing. Everywhere I go all across the world, I preach this Pentecostal message. I believe in the repentance and the baptism in Jesus' name and the infilling of the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 2, 38. I believe in that message and I preach it everywhere I go. I believe in apostolic demonstration and lifestyle. And everywhere I go, I pursue and hunger for the gifts of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit and the anointing of His presence. Everywhere I go, I hunger for the apostolic. Everywhere I am, I hunger for the Pentecostal. But I'm telling you today, I'd rather be Christian than be Pentecostal or apostolic. If I was the most powerful individual in the world, what good would it be? If he didn't know me and I didn't know him, if I could count numbers above anybody in my entire generation of how many have prayed through under the ministry or how many gifts have operated, what good would it be if I didn't know him and he didn't know me? There's a story in 1 Samuel It's the story of David. The time has now come to when the prophet Samuel is elderly and he is passing away. And the anointed next king of Israel is David. But he has been anointed for years, over a dozen years, to be the next king. But he's not king yet. It's interesting to me that David, who's the anointed to be king, chosen of God to be king, is actually fighting with the one that has position as king and no anointing. King Saul's anointing has been rejected. God no longer is anointing Saul to be king. David is anointed. David is king. But he with position position is fighting him with anointing that has no position because that's the nature of mankind. And David is taking care of his time, hiding in the caves of Paran, the wilderness, with 600 outcasts of society, trying to not be killed by King Saul and waiting for the time that he will become the king of Israel like has been prophesied, like he's been anointed. But David is not just twiddling his thumbs. He's doing what he can to love on the people of Israel. That's his ministry, Israel. And so there's an individual in that area known as Nabal of Maon. Now, if you know the story of Nabal, you're probably thinking immediately, oh, Nabal, that's that, that's that terrible guy, that, that very bad individual. But I, I want you to hear how the Scripture speaks of Nabal. The, Nabal says that he, the Bible says that he was a great man. That word great does not mean that he was perfect in his spirit. It means he was loud, he was mighty, he made a difference everywhere he went, he had a big reputation, people knew who he was. The Bible also says of Nabal that he was blessed of God. He has thousands of sheep, 3,000. He has thousands of goats. He has servants and manservants and maidservants. He's blessed of God. He's of the house of Caleb. So he comes up with a heritage that that individual, Caleb, who declared, I might not have the energy in my age, but if God says there's a mountain, give me my mountain because God will make up the difference. And a man 
great faith like Caleb is where Nabal descends from. He's also suggesting that he has a wife, Abigail, that is tremendously wise and is beautiful in spirit as well. So Nabal is blessed in so many ways. I don't want you to see him as an evil man. He's blessed in so many ways. But the problem with Nabal is that his name means dolt. (laughs) D-O-L-T. I'm not sure what you think of when you hear that word dolt. I I just see Homer Simpson. Some of you don't know who Brother Homer is. That's all right. But just dolt. It's not so much that he's not blessed and smart and positioned, but the way he treats people, curlish. The old English word we see in the King James Version, curlish. That means he's rude to people. If he can get a higher place on the ladder, he'll step on you to get there. That he is harsh in the way he deals with people. And this is where Nabal is. David is making sure that as he's hiding in the caves of Maon, that he is protecting everyone that lives around. And he will not let any marauding thieves steal from Nabal's flock. Runs off the thieves. He makes sure that none of his men steal a sheep or steal a goat. He's protecting Nabal. He's protecting everything in the area. And finally, as David waits, Nabal now is in a time of blessing. He's shearing his sheep. He's harvesting his goats. And David sends ten servants to Nabal and says, Hey, I've been taking care of you. You are blessed because of my protection. Would you somehow... Show the act of kindness that I've given you with an act of kindness. Give us a love token. Give us a few sheep and some goats to help us out. And when Nabal hears this, he disrespects David big time. And he begins to say, why would I be such a poor steward of my blessing? Now, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth, but this is what he says. Why would I be such a poor steward and give my blessings to a rebel? Now, when he identifies David as a rebel, he immediately brings association of his allegiance to King Saul. So his allegiance and his loyalty is with the unanointed that's in position. And he cares nothing for the true anointed that doesn't have position yet, David. It shows an individual that's curlish, that's all about their reputation, that's everything about what they want and what they see and what they have for themselves. He even speaks despairingly of David's father, the patriarch, Jesse. And he says, Jesse has character problems, or we wouldn't let his rebel son rouse around doing what he's doing. And when the servants of David come back to David, heads hung, shamed by what Nabal has said and done, they say, David, Nabal doesn't know you. He doesn't believe in your anointing. He has no idea you're going to be the next king of Israel. He doesn't believe anything of the calling of God, what the prophet said and did. He doesn't believe any of that, and he won't bless you at all, even though you have blessed him for now many months. And David is so mad because Nabal doesn't believe in him. And when he ministered to Nabal, Nabal is talking him and being rebellious to him that David decides, I'll show this guy. And he leaves only a couple hundred men in his camp. And he takes 400 fighting men and he begins to march on the house of Nabal. David is going to take his men and destroy Nabal from the face of the earth. He's not going to let not only Nabal will die, but every sheep, every goat, every manservant, every maidservant. David is not going to leave one stone unturned. He's going to destroy and obliterate Nabal from the face of the earth. 
Now, one of the servants of Nabal, here's the exchange of what's going on between Nabal and David, and he hightails it back to the house of Nabal where Abigail is. And he says, Abigail, you know how your husband can be curlish, harsh, rude, uncaring, step on you to get one more rung in the ladder. And this is what he has done. He has David. He said, I am proof throughout these months. David has protected. Nabal is blessed because of what David has done. And now David has mounted up fighting men, and he is going to destroy everything of Nabal's household, including you, Abigail. Abigail puts together what, in my estimation, it's not a huge love token. It's small compared to the 600 men that David had. It might feed 50 men one meal, maybe. Maybe, maybe a couple of meals. Just a small token. And she takes that, puts it together, and sends it out to intercept David as he's coming to destroy Nabal's household. And when David sees this love token, again, it's not a lot. It's about respect, not about the amount of the token. And when David sees this love token, it stops him. What does this mean? What is going on? And Abigail arrives behind the love token. She gets off her beast of burden, and she kneels at the feet of David. Again, you got to see what's happening here. Nabal is probably in his 50s. He's known as the richest man in town. He's got all of these servants, all of these manservants. He's got all of this reputation. Everybody steps off the sidewalk when he walks by and gives obeisance to him. And Abigail, his wife, is kneeling at the feet of a 30-year-old shepherd boy who has a prophetic utterance and anointing upon his life. And she begins to talk to David. The first thing that she says is, David, my husband, Nabal, has sinned against you. He has done you wrong. He doesn't believe who you are. He, he doesn't see your anointing. He doesn't expect that you will ever be king of Israel. But then she begins to stand in the gap with an intercession. As she says, will you let the sin of my husband be upon me. Look at me like I did that to you, which my husband did. And let me beg forgiveness. Let me kneel at your feet and beg forgiveness. And then she speaks wisdom that we have to hear today. She says, David, if you make a decision today and destroy all of Nabal's household. If you make a decision based on what someone who doesn't believe in you, who doesn't know you, who doesn't have confidence in you, if you make a decision based on what they said and what they did, you are going to limit your ministry, your prophetic gifting will be limited. What God has prophesied to you will be less. And when you go to sit on the throne, you're going to have problems with your leadership and the unity because what you've done to Nabal. And David hears the wisdom and he so believes in the prophetic utterance that's been upon his life that he forgives Abigail and by proxy, Nabal forgives Nabal and takes his men and the love token and goes back to his caves. Nabal, in the meantime, has come home and he decides that he's going to throw a huge feast. Now, you've got to see this is what I'm talking about, talking out of both sides of his mouth because he said I'm going to be a good to the blessing of God. But now he's throwing this huge feast and the purpose of the feast is so everybody We'll see how rich he is, how blessed he is. It will make his reputation a little bit more. See him, they'll be, oh, that's Nabal. Look how mighty he is, how great he is, how blessed of God he is, how, I guess, anointed he is. Abigail doesn't tell Nabal what she did and how she saved him and his household. 
until after the feast is over. He's had his time of joy, his time of merriment. And then she speaks to him and says, Nabal, the only reason you're alive and that you have anything today is because I took a love token, kneeled at the feet of David and begged his forgiveness. And he forgave you because of my plea of intercession. And Nabal hears these words of what his wife did to David. And the Bible says his heart turned to stone. His ability to have emotional care and compassion died within him. And because of that, just a few days later, 10 days, his flesh joined his emotions, his heart, and he left this world. David gave the proper time of grieving to Abigail, and then he sends for her and says, Abigail, because you believed in me when others didn't, because you knew of my anointing and my prophecy when others didn't know me, because you saw in me what I am not even living yet, and you knew it's the will and the purpose of God. He I want you to come covenant relationship with me. Come marry me. And when I sit on the throne of Hebron and then Jerusalem, you will sit there with me. and You will enjoy the point in the call and the prophecy that I am. And this is exactly what happened as Abigail is now wed to David. This story of Abigail is a ministry that God has sent me here today not just to preach, but to hopefully demonstrate and to speak to you of a purpose that he's given for us as a church to reach our world that is so hungry and so looking and so lost. Our cities that desperately something to be said to them that will change what they're hearing and all the religiosity that they hear over and over somehow it would be heard differently than just another phrase of God this, God that, church this, church that, religion this, religion that. So would you allow me like Abigail to get off my beast of burden and I don't want you to see me for the next few moments as an evangelist or preacher. But I, I just want to be real. And I want to kneel literally at your feet. I want to, I, I want to begin to beg your forgiveness. And this is why. I'm so thankful for organized religion. Because if I try to do this all by myself, my efforts will be so limited. We've got to have organized religion where people of like precious faith pull together and can change an entire world because we're pulling our resources and our ministries together. However, this great organization that I'm a part of has done things that I'm not proud of. And sometimes we have made decisions based on how it makes us look or whether or not we'll get sued rather than what would Jesus do. I'm telling you, even our great organization has not always done things right. But we need to be organized to pull our resources together for the world. So I want to kneel before you and say, please, for any church or any church leader or any religion that has done you wrong. And I'm telling you, yes, they have done wrong. If it's done wrong and it has hurt you and it has broke you and it has hindered you, let me kneel at your feet today and say, please, let the sin of that organization or that church or that church leader be upon me today.
And let me beg your forgiveness because we desperately need to get past this. We don't want to limit our, our, our prophecy and we don't want to limit our anointing not getting past this thing we have. Secondly, I'm begging your forgiveness as a preacher. Can I tell you it's rare when I sit down beside a stranger, perhaps on an airplane or in a waiting area somewhere. It's rare that I tell them I'm a preacher or I'm an evangelist. Most of them don't know what an evangelist is. It's rare. And the reason why is because I don't want the individual beside me to have an instant cynicism. Oh, Jimmy Swaggart, Jim Baker. Oh, billionaires that have their private jets and kingdoms and followings. Oh, church leaders that are pedophiles and churches that are accepting all kind of perversion. No wonder there's cynicism about preachers of the gospel. But this is how God chose to win the world is through the foolishness of preaching. So for the sake of preaching that's going to save our souls, would you allow me to kneel at your feet today and beg your forgiveness? Please let that sin be upon me, the preacher that hurt you, the preacher that didn't do what he should have, the preacher. Let that be upon me so that I can beg your forgiveness. I'm kneeling here for saints today. I'm a saint. And I'm begging people who've been hurt by saints, and we don't talk about this. But can I tell you how difficult it is when you pour yourself into somebody and you pray for somebody and you invest in somebody and you're speaking out to God and then things happen of rejection or things happen of rumors and things being spoken and just all the kind of, it is so painful and it's so hurtful. But we don't need church leaders and preachers that are walking away right now. There's cities that need new pastors. Would you let me be a saint today and let the sin or the hurt of what that saint has done be upon me and let me beg forgiveness. I'm kneeling here because of the gifts of the Spirit. We have got to have the supernatural among us today. And we have to have someone to beg forgiveness because it's been used improperly. It's been used to intimidate. It's been used to build up reputation. It's been used for all kinds of things. But in a world that is so hungry for the supernatural, would you, would you let that individual that intimidated or hurt you, let that be me so I can beg your forgiveness, please? Forgive me. Please forgive me. This, this, this is why. Because if I come here to live in faith today, and I see you as another stop for me to preach on my circuit, I could preach a pretty sermon, get a check, go on my way. But when I come here, I see the anointing of God is upon you. It's upon you as a church. It's upon you as an individual. It's powerfully upon the leadership of this church. And so if I see you as the anointed of God, has got prophetic utterances and promises in your life, I, I can't just treat you like somebody else. Maybe others that don't know who you are and don't believe in your promises and the prophetic can say things. Maybe they can do things. Maybe they can, but you can't make a decision today 
based on what someone who doesn't believe in you, who doesn't know you, who doesn't understand your prophetic and your anointing, if you make a decision and you act and react because of that, you're going to hinder the prophetic spoken word in your life. You're going to limit the prophecies that God has already spoken to you. You're going to have to just forgive me and just go back to the cave that you're living in. Many that I see this anointing on right now, you're not on the throne. You're still in the cave with a bunch of society outcasts as your bedfellows. And even though you're not perfectly where you need to be with God, I still see powerful anointing upon your life, a great calling of God upon your spirit. And I've come with the ministry of Abigail to hopefully minister to you so you'll forgive me. And then an impartation of this ministry that will loose revival of backsliders that is right now ready to harvest in this city. If there are some dads that could talk to their kids like this, it changed their lives. If there are some church leaders that would speak to some backsliders like this. It ain't about who's right and who's wrong. It's about making sure forgiveness is in the hearts of those we're ministering to. And if I have to go to a personal Calvary, then that's okay because that's what my master did. Gave his life for me. And it's my great honor and privilege to maybe just bespoil a little of my reputation and let me be the sinner that you can focus on for forgiveness can happen today. Would you stand with me? For every individual in the place today that feels like you can't make the right choice because that one hasn't asked forgiveness yet. Can't say that anymore. For, for everyone here that is blaming something that happened on your ministry not blossoming and you're not doing the commitment that you need, can't say that anymore because I am kneeling before you and saying let that sin let that hurt let that thing be me and I'm asking please forgive me forgive me I recognize your anointing your calling the promises of God, the prophetic upon your life. Got a brand new vision today as is a church service. I saw revival happening in Washington. Yeah, don't say that around the United States. A revival happening in Washington. In cities, finding revival. Churches, getting a new vision, a new burden. Growth and discipleship. So I've got to do everything I can do. The anointing of the Holy Ghost upon me today. Forgive me.
time that we close some doors so that the open door that Christ has put before us, we can walk through. It's time that we get over some things. If, if not for the sake of just being asked and giving some kind of obesity to for the sake of our future, our calling, our anointing. And it's time that we pick up the spirit of Abigail and let this ministry operate in a spiritually ravaged city and region. I'm giving two altar calls simultaneously. If you're here and you need to talk to Jesus about letting go of some things, I'm inviting you. And also, if you want the ministry of Abigail to be upon you for the sake of your children and your neighbors and your backslidden loved ones and, and the city that so desperately needs but has been hurt by religiosity, then would you come with those that are coming also and let's fill up this altar. Would you do that live in faith? Let's fill up this altar and let the Holy Ghost just begin to forgive and to heal and to impart ministry, healing. I'm appealing. Some of you have not responded in a long time. You, you might need to respond to the Holy Ghost this morning. And if you don't feel comfortable coming all the way down to this altar, then maybe turning in the pew where you're standing and kneel there. But a response should happen in some individuals today. And Holy Ghost, help us. Father, draw us. Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Beautiful. Beautiful. Beautiful response to the altar. Now, ministry, I'm going to need your help. I know you want to talk to the Lord about some things, but I need your help today. We're going to be ministering in this church for just a little while. Intercessors, I need you to find a passion. I need you to find a passion so that we can break through. And let your intercession begin to move among us today so that we can break through. And there'll be a liberty in the Holy Ghost in this altar. Singers and worshipers, lead us right now, if you would. And let there be a drawing close to Him. We want to be vulnerable, for we know Him and that He knows us. Would you give yourself to ministry right now in the name of Jesus? In the name of Jesus. You've been listening to the Living Faith Everett podcast series. Tune in next week for the next part of this series, or join us online at livingfaithministries.church. Ghost, you give me peace.